You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We are in a moment of massively high debt levels and massively high inflation. Inflationary pressures weren't caused by economic policies. A lot of them were caused by a pandemic. We can't lose sight of that either. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. There is so much speculation right now about the Department of Justice, and it's under a haze of questions. The burden is on Congress to come up with an immigration plan that's comprehensive. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. There are behind-the-scenes talks on the debt limit, or at least that's what the Republican House Budget Chairman told us yesterday. And in a few minutes, we'll talk to his Democratic counterpart, Brendan Boyle from Pennsylvania, about whether they're making any progress. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot lost her re-election bid. We're going to get a call from Shruti Singh from our Chicago Bureau to walk us through the takeaways. And of course, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Rick Davis are here to discuss the first bill introduced by George Santos, which is surprisingly a normal bill. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick filling in today for Joe Matthew. We're joined now by Congressman Brendan Boyle, Democrat from Pennsylvania. He's the top Democrat on the House Budget Committee. Uh, unfortunately, we just spoke to his counterpart yesterday, Jody Arrington, the chairman. Uh, Congressman, very happy to have you on, Congressman Boyle. Uh, I asked Chairman Arrington yesterday if anything was really happening on the debt limit because it's been kind of quiet between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy lately. Here's what he had to say. A lot more is happening than uh, meets the public eye. We're having conversations with Democrat colleagues, and uh, I'm sure that Speaker McCarthy's having even his own separate conversation. We have been very clear. Uh, we have to have fiscal reforms and some common sense spending controls if we're going to expand the line of credit um, uh, to any Washington politician. As examples, uh, Congressman Arrington mentioned discretionary spending caps, stricter work requirements for programs like SNAP, uh, food stamps, and rescinding unspent COVID money. Now, Congressman Brendan Boyle, the, the top Democrat on the Budget Committee, I, I've got to ask you, is, is there really progress happening on debt limit talks behind the scenes? Well, Jack, good to be with you. And I, I would not um, label it as, as progress, at least far as I see. It is true that we're talking to one another. Look, I mean, I have a good cordial relationship with uh, with Chairman Arrington, and indeed, I consider Jody a, a friend, so there's certainly nothing, um, you know, there's certainly nothing personal between us. He's a principled uh, 
um, very conservative member who truly believes that our national debt is too high and that this is an urgent problem that we need to tackle. My position is, and it happens to be the same as President Biden's, is that we need to pay the bills that we've already accrued. This is not a conversation about future spending. This is a conversation about spending that we already voted on. Indeed, spending bills, by the way, most of the other side of the aisle already voted on. So, look, I voted repeatedly to raise the debt ceiling as a Democrat in the minority when there was a Republican president in the White House and when Republicans were in control of the Congress. It wasn't a controversial issue then. But now that there's a Democrat in the White House, suddenly there are those Republicans who are playing politics with this issue. This should be beyond the pale. We need to raise the debt ceiling, period. So if if there is not behind-the-scenes progress necessarily, what happens next? What, what shakes something loose? Does it have to be a, a, a bigger meeting between Biden and McCarthy, or is everybody going to sit on their hands for a little while? Look, the, the way to raise the debt ceiling is to put the bill on the floor and to have the vote to raise the debt ceiling. I'm confident that we will have the vote if and when that bill is put on the floor. Now, the challenge is that Kevin McCarthy, finally, after five days of voting and 15 different rounds, finally got enough on his own side of the aisle to make him speaker. The challenge is, from what I understand, is that Kevin McCarthy promised a lot of things to a lot of different people in his own caucus. And so this might be a challenge for him to put a clean debt ceiling increase on the floor. But one way or the other, he's going to need to do it. Are you hinting at a discharge petition to force that to happen? Uh, not necessarily. Look, I I don't discount the possibility of that happening. Um, but I've always been what I would call a uh, discharge petition realist. Mm-hmm. And that is that the reality is it's very difficult to do. I mean, it's happened once in the last decade. It's happened twice successfully in the last two decades. Um, so we need to be realistic. Uh, you know, there's one scenario out there in which Kevin McCarthy would secretly be very happy to see a discharge petition because it would get the job done in terms of raising the debt ceiling and, oh, by the way, avoiding a worldwide cataclysmic event. But at the same time, he wouldn't have to be seen as in any way being part of doing it. So I can see it from that perspective. But the reality is, without at least the tacit support of the speaker, it is enormously difficult to achieve. So it it sounds like we're still in kind of the context of putting pressure on Kevin McCarthy. Um, In addition to that, I want to ask you, because I know you've had some interest in the idea of changing the law so that we, yeah. as you said, the the cataclysmic nature of this that we have to cover every couple of years, it seems like, um, is there a realistic path forward to either ending the debt limit or changing the law in some way so that we don't do this all the time? You know, I'm really excited to say I think the answer is yes. Actually, on your show about 24 hours ago, Jody Arrington himself signaled a, a willingness to look at this. Um, the debt ceiling, by the way, came about a century ago. Um, as sort of an accident of history, uh, it, it, it was actually uh, done by Treasury to make it easier to pay our debts, not more difficult. It is now, you know, over the last dozen years or so, it has been completely weaponized in a very different way. My concern is that at some point, if we 
allow this mechanism to continue. And given how divisive and, frankly, dysfunctional our politics have become, um, this is just dangerous. The idea that one party in the majority could essentially tank the national and worldwide economy, um, that that is a ticking time bomb. And so my bill is the Debt Ceiling Reform Act. I've introduced it uh, the last couple sessions of Congress. We'll be reintroducing it again this spring, really looking for you know Republicans to jump on board. Any Republican member who would like to see this problem go away and have the debt ceiling increase but not want to vote for it, this is your answer. Um, what my bill very simply would do, it would allow uh, the executive branch to initiate an increase in the debt ceiling. Congress would then have up to 30 days to disapprove that. But absent congressional action, the debt ceiling increase would take place. So I think that's a more responsible way of handling it um, for what is admittedly a, a very confusing situation to most of my voters. They can't believe that we can vote on spending, approve it. A president can sign those spending bills into law. And then there's a separate vote years later as to whether or not we're actually going to pay the bills that we racked up some years ago. Right. Well, we'll have a, an eye out for the introduction of your bill again and see uh, who you can get a, get on as co-sponsors. Um, I want to keep asking you about budget issues, but I should ask yeah. because this headline just came across. Uh, the Senate blocks Biden's ESG investing rule. They, they got the votes uh, sufficient votes for a majority in the Senate on the bill that got through the House yesterday uh, appears to set up a veto by Biden. But I, I want to get your reaction to that news that the ESG bill is through the Senate now. Well, uh, Bloomberg is a top-notch uh, news organization, so you're breaking news to me. I, I didn't realize that. I was on the train uh, heading from D.C. back home uh, to, to Philadelphia, so I had missed that. I have to say, look, I've been a supporter and a believer, just as an individual, in ESG funds. I, I'm not a money manager. I'm not uh, recommending them. I have to say, though, as a, an investor, I would like to have them available as an option. I don't see why for your 401k or your Roth IRA or traditional IRA that you can't at least have that as an option. Um, so I, I vote. There was a House vote this week. I voted to keep them as as an option. And I think that's more appropriate, frankly, for the investor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to ask, especially if I have the ranking member of the Budget Committee on the phone, you know, it, it's a little more rare to see the minority party put out their own budget resolution, but that used to be something that happens more frequently. Uh, we heard from Congre- uh, Chairman Arrington about the work he's doing on the Republican budget resolution. Is there going to be a, a minority party, a Democrat, uh, a Democratic budget resolution that you're going to work on? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting you ask that because I was just talking about that with some of my colleagues this afternoon on the floor, Democratic colleagues. Uh, so look, uh, the president, who obviously is of our own party, is going to be presenting his budget on March 9th. Um, I suspect it's going to be a budget that most of us on my Democratic side agree with. Um, so right now I'm having conversations with my Democratic colleagues. Do we want to rally around the president's budget and make that ours? Or do we want to offer our own budget as essentially something that would probably be like the president, but perhaps with some changes? So uh, to be continued, I I don't know the answer to that question yet, um, but we'll be able to know one way or the other probably in about a month or so. 
Okay. Well, what what's what are some of the top things? Uh, I know it's a big document, but maybe one or two things that you're really looking forward to when the president's budget does come out next week. Yeah. So first, let's just take a step back and recognize that, in my view, uh, but certainly not only my view, the term in Congress we just completed, in my view, again, was the most successful on domestic policy since the 1965-66 Congress. What we did on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, an issue that had been uh, debated for decades, including, by the way, by the most recent Republican president who wasn't able to get it done, we were able to get it done, and with a large Republican majority, especially in the Senate, joining us. The Chips and Science Act, which will help us enormously decouple ourselves in terms of these precious chips, from Asia. What we just did in terms of health care for those veterans who were exposed to burn pits and now may have resulted, uh, may have developed cancer as a result. Um, the American Rescue Plan, the initial um, COVID bills right when the president took office, et cetera, et cetera. These are enormous bills that are not just a, you know, a matter for last year or the last couple of years. They will continue to play out over the course of the next decade as those checks are being rolled out. So really what I want to focus on is making sure that we have locked in the gains of the last two years and that we protect them from any potential backsliding or cuts that would now happen under Republican rule. Right. Um, Before I let you go, Congressman, you're from the Philadelphia area. The Sixers are third in the East. Is this a legit finals (laughs) contender? Well, first, as I'm, I'm literally in the car here on I-95 because I, I just gotten off the train, I am in what right now is a sports city on a hell of a roll. The Phillies went to the World Series. The Eagles went to the Super Bowl, even though we got robbed by that bogus uh, holding call. And the Sixers are looking good, but the last couple of years they've had a tendency to disappoint in the playoffs. So if, if in this budget I can provide you know some extra funding to help us down the stretch, <laughs> and make sure we get that sixth or seventh man, I'll be honest, I'm not above doing it. So close, so close. Congressman Brendan Boyle, (laughs) thank you for joining us. Let's bring in the panel. We've got Jeannie Sheenzano and Rick Davis, our Bloomberg Politics contributors. And, you know, while we're talking to the Democratic budget experts, let's also bring in uh, a little bit of sound from earlier today. This was Sheldon Whitehouse uh, speaking earlier today. He's the top Democrat on the Budget Committee in the Senate, the chairman, uh, discussing the uh, anti-woke, I suppose, budget priorities of Republicans. Well, their problem is you can say woke for a while, but then people will notice that they no longer have disability benefits or that they can't afford their prescription drugs or that huge corporations are paying nothing in taxes. The woke screen is a smoke screen and people need to see through it. The woke screen is a smoke screen and Americans need to see through it. To what Republicans are really paper, trying to do. Did you just come up with that? <laughs> that was Chuck Schumer commenting on the the genius of the the rhyme woke screen smoke screen uh, a tongue twister. Uh, let's bring in Rick and Jeannie because I we did even a little bit get into this with the uh, with Chairman Arrington yesterday about uh, they've they've eliminated the idea of a big entitlement solvency measure on the debt limit. Um, they say they don't, they don't want to cut defense funding 
Rick, are, are Republicans kind of narrowing them down themselves down to such small politicized things that they don't even really have many options to cut spending? Well, I think you've uncovered the mystery of the Republican strategy, right? It's not really to cut spending. It's to make the spending on these, quote, woke matters. I love the woke screen as a smoke screen. Really well done. Um, and, 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 and it's just like a, it's just like a ploy to, uh, to try and beat the drum on some of these, these woke measures that were, you know, in, their, in the Republicans' minds, passed as mostly entitlements. So we're really talking about, you know, gathering up a bunch of entitlements out of the HHS budget, you know, out of the transportation budget and, and saying, Oh, well, these things were really horrible. They should have never been in the budget to begin with. And they'll, they'll use them as, as ways of sort of driving their culture war debate. And, and it's really got very little to do with, um, you know, trying to rein in federal spending or, uh, attack the deficit. Uh, but yeah, they'll use this time, uh, effectively to, uh, demagogue the, the wokeness of it. And, uh, and I think that most members of Congress who are responsible fiscal conservatives will just roll their eyes thinking, how did we get into this mess? Right. Um, we've got our rhyme of the day. So that's that's good to have that covered. Coming up, we're going to keep the panel around. We're going to talk about the heat on Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary. Is that actually the person who uh, who should be? Uh, the the focus in everything we've seen in East Palestine. And after that, we're going to talk Chicago politics with Shruti Singh from our Chicago Bureau. Just a few minutes until we get into Lori Lightfoot's uh, problems there. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. <laughs> Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Secretary Buttigieg has seemed more interested in pursuing press coverage for woke initiatives and climate nonsense than in attending to basic elements of his day job. Remember Elaine Chow? She was, uh, you know, she was the, the head of Department of Transportation and where when there was these types of uh, chemical spills, nobody was calling for her uh, to be fired. Well, we've got a debate primarily over Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, maybe even more so than on the substance of uh, the the uh, the what is happening after the train derailment in East Palestine. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick with our panel today. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shianzano are Bloomberg Politics contributors. You heard it from 
Senator Mitch McConnell and Corrine Jean-Pierre at the White House uh, uh, having a little back and forth among many politicians having a back and forth on Buttigieg specifically. I would note Congressman Mike Waltz, Republican from Florida, is leading a, a handful of House Republicans calling for Buttigieg to resign. Senator Marco Rubio has previously done the same. Jeannie, I, I want to get it straight from you. Uh, the, the big picture question here, is this actually about Pete, Pete Buttigieg? Is this about any of his policy failures or is this more about his profile and his political ambitions? You know, I think it's a combination of both. I think Pete Buttigieg and the administration as a whole, they were late on to the story coming out of Ohio and the train derailment. And Pete Buttigieg made some unfortunate comments, things like, you know, oh, I can't go to all of them. There's, you know, 1,000 derailments a year. And while there is some truth to that, this was a big deal. These were toxic chemicals. And the administration <coughs> was flat-footed in that response. So that's part of it. But absolutely, there are politics at play here. He is seen as one of the leading contenders, you know, after President Biden and potentially Vice President Harris uh, as an up and coming next on the bench Democrat at the national level. So the ability of Republicans to sort of keep underscoring that he doesn't sort of match the moment helps them politically. But I think the really important story here is that this is a community that feels forgotten and Republicans are going to keep pointing to the fact that the president is more focused on Ukraine and Zelensky than he is on Americans in the rural, you know, Midwest. And that's something we're hearing from candidates as well. DeSantis, you know, on his not, you know, uh, on his book tour that is not a run for the presidency yet has been saying, you know, I have Midwestern values. My parents are from those parts of the country and I'm going to bring those values back. So it works to their advantage. We're going to keep hearing about it. I doubt he gets impeached, but the more they talk about it, the better off for them politically. Take it from me, a lot of people's parents are from the Midwest, uh, whether you're from the Midwest or not. Um, Rick, you could make the case that a cabinet secretary, uh, especially the transportation secretary, really only becomes high profile if something goes wrong. Uh, but I'm curious if this is maybe a notable exception, considering the role that Pete Buttigieg has in this administration especially uh, considering everything that's being done with the rollout of the infrastructure law enacted in late 2021. Uh, I I'm curious, I mean, do you think he was kind of doomed from the start to take the heat for any mistakes and not really get much glory? Yeah, well, first of all, that is the job of the cabinet, right? I mean, like if anything bad happens, it's their responsibility. And if anything good happens, they need to give it to the White House and let the president take credit for it. So I started my uh, uh, career in government in the White House uh, with Ronald Reagan working on cabinet affairs. And, and, and this was a mandatory requirement. Anything happens out there, you, you, the secretary and the agency employees get out there and, and fix it. Uh, and then they give the, the opportunity for the president to take credit. Because after all, they're just glorified staffers. I mean, that's what a cabinet secretary is. And what I don't understand is how tone deaf this administration has been around an issue that, that frankly, I would have thought they'd hit out of the park. Oh, let's let the uh, uh, train uh, Norfolk Southern Company uh, handle the cleanup. Why would a Democratic administration not want EPA to handle the cleanup? Then they flipped on that. And now they're flipping on a few other issues. And and I just don't think they had their act together. Um, why why uh, are they allowing the the narrative to get into this idea that, you know, Biden is ignoring him, then send Harris. I mean, that's what a vice president does. They go to disasters. Right. Uh, so I just don't really get it. They're kind of like making it up as they go along. And this is a very skilled, very experienced team. They should have knocked this one out of the park at the very beginning. Missed opportunities, mistakes, 
and a, I think, political spotlight on this. Uh, speaking of a political spotlight, let's talk about Ted Cruz. Senator Ted Cruz from uh, Texas was railing on Attorney General Merrick Garland during a hearing today, saying he didn't do enough to keep Supreme Court justices safe during protests near their homes. Uh, let's play the exchange on that. The job of the United States Marshals is to defend the lives. So of the, the answer ju- is no. Is to defend the lives of the justices. And that's their number one priority. They have. Why are you unwilling to say no? The answer is no. You know it's no. I know it's no. Everyone in this in this hearing room knows it's no. You're not willing to answer a question. Have you brought a case under this statute? Yes or no? As far as I know, we haven't. And what we have done is defended to the lies of the justices. With so how do you decide? US marshals. How do you decide which criminal statutes the the DOJ enforces and which one it doesn't? The United States Marshals know that they have full. Okay, you, I recognize you want to give a separate speech. No. All right, so it's a, an exchange between the uh, on the assignment of U.S. Marshals to protect Supreme Court justices, but not filing charges against anybody in particular. Uh, Jeannie, I, I I sometimes struggle to decipher between these two options. Was this actually specifically about uh, something that functionally affects Supreme Court justice safety, or is this kind of the the classic confrontational hearing video clip? It is a feisty Ted Cruz trying to get a clip out there, and and he will, and he'll use it on his podcast. And, you know, listen, the reality is, is that we have seen more, it's a serious issue, we have seen not just Supreme Court justices, but federal judges whose security, not because of anything Merrick Garland has done or not, but they have been, you know, at the forefront of what has been really, really horrific violence. I mean, I live in New York, the federal judge in New Jersey whose son was killed, these are horrific attacks. So that is a real issue. Him, you know, yelling at the uh, attorney general about this is not going to do much to change it. They don't file charges. It's not, a, in, in this case, at least the case he's talking about, they did not file charges. But the reality is it has more to do with funding by Congress to make sure that they have enough marshals assigned to protect these people. And that's the reality of it. And so Congress does own some of this as well. And Ted Cruz didn't want to talk about that portion of it. It's a, a serious issue that Congress has to, and uh, the last couple of years has legislated on, as you said, funding uh, resources. Um, but we've already established that a, a cabinet secretary largely exists to take the heat. So it, it is what it is for Merrick Garland. Um, let's discuss, uh, I don't know if I should call him the man of the hour, but I, I want to talk about George Santos because he actually introduced a bill. It is a surprisingly normal bill. Uh, it is a bill to raise the state and local tax deduction from $10,000 to $50,000. It's the most normal thing you could expect from a New York legislator of either party. Now, I would point out that Nick LaLota, another Republican from Long Island, uh, who has called for Santos to be kicked out of Congress, uh, responded to this saying, let's not pretend anything George Santos does is serious. Um, but I'm just curious, as we see a very normal bill filed by one of the least normal members of Congress, who's been in a lot of hot water for lying about his personal and professional background. Jeannie, do you see any chance that George Santos just kind of blends in among other members of Congress for a whole two years? I cannot imagine it. He's got constituents protesting his very existence in Congress. I will say, I've talked about the SALT so many times on this show because it is extremely popular with people in the place where I live. And so he knows what he is doing when he's introducing this bill. But the reality is, is that there is probably not going to be a bill like this that passes under Santos's name where he's going to get credit or will wipe away anything that he has done before, regardless of how popular it is. 
is. Yeah, especially with Republican control of the House. Uh, that's a tough one. Rick, real quick. I, I mean, I'm skeptical that anything gets done on salt during Republican control of the House. Am I am I wrong there? No, Jack, I think you, you hit it right on the nail. Uh there's very little appetite for it outside of the big states like California and New York. And even though Jeannie loves this, uh, there are very few other members who want to really expend themselves to, to do anything about it. And and what's interesting is there are other bills. It's not just Santos's bill, but his is pretty generous compared to the others. So, I mean, right. he, you give him credit for one-upping a few of these people on, <laughs> on generosity. But, but yeah, this is just one of those things that uh, it's going to take a real – deal like you know maybe you add this to a big omnibus someday and get right. somebody voting on it who otherwise wouldn't ever take the walk on it so uh i just don't see it as a standalone bill getting past any congress right, right. now. coming up we're going to talk about Lori lightfoot's loss in her mayoral re-election campaign in chicago you're listening to the bloomberg sound on podcast catch us live weekdays at five eastern on bloomberg.com the iHeartRadio app and the bloomberg business app or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts i'm jack fitzpatrick from bloomberg government in for joe matthew today chicago mayor Lori lightfoot lost her re-election bid yesterday paul vallis and brandon johnson will go to a runoff after no one got 50 percent in January, Bloomberg's David Weston spoke with Chicago, the Chicago mayor, about some of the challenges facing her campaign. We make great progress in 22. Our homicides were down 14 percent. Our shootings were down uh, 20 percent. Our carjackings were down another 10 percent. But by no means are we the, at the end of the road. These are problems that were decades in the making. We're not going to get out of them overnight. We know that. But we are making measurable progress. So that's a lot of challenges. Let's bring in Shruti Singh, Bloomberg municipal finance reporter out of our Chicago bureau to make sense of the significance of her loss. Uh, Mayor Lightfoot garnered 17 percent in this reelection bid. Shruti, uh, that was a lot of uh, a lot of challenges that the mayor mentioned. Why did she lose and especially why did she get uh, such a, a low percentage of the vote? I think like a lot of cities, Chicago has gone through a lot of challenges, crime being at uh, the top of people's minds. And with the runoff, there were nine different candidates. So the vote was split in many different directions. And because of the rule that a candidate has to either get 50 percent to be declared the victor or there's a runoff, I think there was just a lot of uh, different people campaigning in, in a lot of different ways and voters had to really pick between a lot of different candidates. Is she going to endorse someone or, or did this go so badly that there's not really someone in particular for her hand, to hand the baton off to? You know, I don't know. Uh, we haven't really spoken with her related to her endorsements. Um, uh, you know, that's to be seen in the next few weeks, I guess, to see how uh, people allied together and where the voters go. Uh, is there a favorite between Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson? I know Vallis got the most in this initial round. That can be unpredictable. But it, can we tell who is most likely to win at this point? I think that's really tough to say because they come from uh, different perspectives and they have uh, different uh, points of views on uh, the different topics. So we're going to have to see what coalitions they build. All right. Thank you so much, Shruti Singh. Let's bring in our panel Jeannie Sheen Zeno and Rick Davis are Bloomberg politics contributors for more on this. Uh, Rick, we've heard 
crime. Uh, COVID was a challenge for a lot of mayors. Uh, are, are we leaving things out? What, what do you suspect uh, did in Lori Lightfoot in her reelection campaign? You know, I think it was kind of like the combination of all these issues that you've described and also fiscal problems that the city was having. And a lot of companies were leaving. A lot of uh, uh, narrative was created around the idea that uh, businesses were leaving Chicago, even though there's not a lot of hard evidence that they were net employer negative. Uh, it, it, it became sort of the thing that people believed in. And so it was a city under distress. Uh, you mentioned uh, the crime uh, that was in the news every single day, and she just couldn't shake it off. There wasn't a good policy in place that people felt was uh, they could get comfortable and confident behind that was going to fix the problem. And she just ran out of time. And so uh, you see this in politics quite a bit, where so many of these things sort of take root in the electorate. Uh, that it's hard to shake them loose and say, no, no, there's an optimistic point of view. We're actually getting over this. Well, she just didn't get over it soon enough. It was a, a, a tough one for more progressive uh, candidates. Lightfoot didn't do well. Uh, Congressman Choi Garcia did not do well. He, he came in fourth in this round. Um, Jeannie, what are the takeaways for the various wings of the Democratic Party based on these results? Well, this is such an important election in particular for Democrats to look at. As you mentioned, there's takeaways for certain segments of the party, but for the party overall going all the way up to the president, we can't forget that in the next few days, if not week, Congress is going to vote on this D.C. crime bill. If Republicans are able to stop it, the president is in a really difficult position All of this having to do with crime. And we've seen this over and over again. We saw it in the New York City mayor's race with Eric Adams winning. Crime was a big issue in 2022. Joe Biden has tried to walk away from this idea of defunding the police. Now you see Lori Lightfoot out, even though she's the first African-American openly gay mayor there, but the first incumbent mayor to lose in 40 years. And all of it has to do with crime. And Rick was just talking about the economic challenges they're facing there. But as you listen to what was going on in the city press, they would relate everything to crime. Why are businesses leaving leaving crime? Why is ridership down in the CTA crime? So they've got to get their hand around a message dealing with how to make these cities and their communities safe. And so for Democrats, I think we are going to see Joe Biden potentially, if Republicans prevail with the help of Joe Manchin and Fetterman out on this D.C. crime bill, he might have to make a really difficult choice there as it pertains to once again shoring up his sort of moderate view that he is going to be tough on crime and they're not going to allow Republicans to paint them to the left on this issue as they move into 24, because that's something that Joe Biden has been serious about. And Republicans in these big cities, that's why we saw DeSantis going to Chicago just the other day to make this very case. So a big problem for Democrats as they move to 24. Well, speaking of who's uh, around the country, who's um, sort of doing the political analysis on this, I have to ask you as our our New Yorker, what is what does this mean and what's the takeaway for Eric Adams? How do you think Eric Adams is feeling watching this? You know, Eric Adams won on a tough on crime message over more progressive Democrats in the city. But quite frankly, Democrats in the city and even, you know, Republicans, everybody in the city, they don't feel like he's done enough on crime. And it almost doesn't have to deal with the crime numbers themselves. Because you look at Chicago, homicides down in 22, but still people are feeling insecure. So I think he is going to have to take the message that he is going to have to show that he is going to be hard on crime everywhere he finds it. And he is not going to be painted again in 
into this corner by progressives as you think about things like mandatory minimums and allowing jury trials, maximum penalties decreasing. All of those things have sent a message in New York and other cities to people that Democrats aren't serious about making people safe in their communities. And it's the Democratic base that's feeling most unsafe in a place like New York. That's why they didn't get out. And that's why Republicans held the House in New York State, not just to mention New York City. Rick, I would uh, real quick, I would note uh, the Chicago Fraternal Order of the Police have endorsed Vallis. Johnson is backed by the Chicago Teachers Union. Is this basically a a fight between the the police and the teachers union going forward between these candidates? Yeah, it looks like that's the choice you're going to get. And uh, and it'll be interesting to see how that prevails, because as uh, you discussed earlier, this was a multi-candidate field. Uh, The election got spread out quite a bit. And and, and there's no clear sense as to who these uh, uh, the losers uh, uh, voters are going to gravitate towards. So uh, we're going to see, I think, a real rock'em sock'em election there coming up. It's another round. It's a runoff. This was just round one. We're going to keep going with the panel coming up, Jeannie Shinzano and Rick Davis, to talk about 20 years since uh, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And speaking of budget issues, the president spoke about that today, saying he wants an increase in funding for uh, that agency. We'll discuss what that has meant uh, really since 9-11. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. President Biden spoke today uh, to Department of Homeland Security employees about the 20-year anniversary of the department. Uh, Among other things, he said he wants a funding increase for the department. Here's what he had to say. We're going to keep making sure you have the resources you need to do the job because your job is so expansive across the board. In fact, I was able to secure record funding for DHS, and I'm asking Congress to do more. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick uh, here with our Bloomberg politics contributors, Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis. Uh, Guys, my Bloomberg government colleague, Ellen Gilmer, had a really good story uh, yesterday uh, interviewing Mark Green, who's the new House Homeland Security chairman who wants to reauthorize and reorganize the department. 
I know that because it's a big department, especially there's been talk sometime about sometimes about, uh, you know, this this covers responsibilities in immigration, border security, anti-terrorism duties, the TSA, natural disasters. Rick, I'm curious, 20 years in how you grade the structure of the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, it's a behemoth, as you described, Jack. And I was around when uh, Senator John McCain was one of the really active senators to uh, put together uh, all these different pieces of, of the agency. And at that time, of course, it's post 9-11. Uh, the country felt like they were under siege by terrorist activity all around the world. And 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 it was to make it big, make it strong and, and make it effective. Uh, and, you know, after 20 years, it would be interesting to see a thorough valuation of the agency. And I think it's certainly Congress's uh, oversight responsibility to do so. But once you start meddling in it, I mean, now it's it's yours. You you break it, you own it. <laughs> and uh, and I'm not sure I'd want to be the member of Congress who tries to reorganize this behemoth. I mean, it is massive and, and it's wrought with problems. Uh, it addresses some of the more difficult issues in our country, as you described, immigration and customs and, and many things associated with law enforcement and, and keeping our country safe. So uh, it is a uh, incredible uh, accomplishment uh, by government because our country has been safe as a result. And so they have a good track record in that most important category. Uh, but sure, uh, congressional right. oversight is definitely something to do. I would note a good quote from this story by Congressman Mark Green, who wants to get into this, quote, will Lean Six Sigma the whole thing out? Jeannie, I'm curious, do you see, especially in this Congress, do you see a willingness and ability to get into big questions about the organization and the functioning of something like the Department of Homeland Security? No, I I don't think they're going to be redesigning it in the next year. I mean, many people have asked about DHS 20 years later. Was it designed to fail? It has an important mission to secure the homeland, as you and Rick were just talking about. But the question is not the mission. The question is the way it's been structured. Is it being asked to run in too many different directions? And so it can't run anywhere successfully. I think it has been successful in a lot of ways. It does need to be reexamined and reorganized. I'm not convinced Congress is going to be the place to do that this year as we run into 24, though. On a lighter note, I would uh, point out, as as we're talking about anniversaries, 20 years of the Department of Homeland Security, 50 years today since Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon came out. Uh, We do talk about money a lot at Bloomberg. We usually don't do it in 7-4 time. So we're going to leave you uh, with this at the end. Thank you again to our guest, Congressman Brendan Boyle, the top Democrat on the House Budget Committee. A little back and forth between him today and uh, the chairman, Jody Arrington, yesterday on whether they're really making progress in uh, discussions about the debt limit. And of course, Jeannie Sheen Zeno and Rick Davis and Shruti Singh out of our Chicago Bureau. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang, 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.